Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Dr. Banu Arun. She's in the Department of Breast Medical Oncology, part of a division of cancer medicine at MD Anderson. So we're going to talk about genetic tests to ascertain what type of uh, breast cancer someone may have, risk factors, et cetera. So welcome, Banu. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. If you would, tell me a bit about your background and then uh, the current work that, you should, that you're doing. Let's go over that. Sure. Yeah, I'm a breast medical oncologist at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, the breast medical oncology department. I also run the clinical cancer genetics department that is basically looking at hereditary factors that could contribute to cancer development besides treating breast cancer. Okay. So in breast cancer, what is some of the testing that goes on to ascertain what kind of breast cancer that someone has? Right. So I think we are talking about two different things. You know, one is what genetic factors can increase risk of breast cancer. So we call that genetic testing for germline mutation that can increase the risk of breast cancer. And then after breast cancer development, we can also do some molecular testing of the tumor that can tell us what type of breast cancer the person has and the treatment. If we want to focus on the risk factors for hereditary cancer, I think the most important thing to know that only about 5 to 10% of all cancers are uh, can be attributed to genetic inherited mutations that are seen in genes. And the majority of these for breast cancer, for example, is BRC1 and BRC2 mutation. So, so what's the consequence of those two mutations? If someone has either of them, what does that mean? For their yeah, so that, that's a very good question. So as I mentioned, luckily, it's not very common. So it's only 5 to 10% of all breast cancer patients have it. And if we look in the overall population, so just general unaffected individuals as well, it's about one in 500 women can have a mutation in BRC1 and 2. So, the, so so that's about 0.2 to 0.3%. But the implications of that, though it's rare, is very important because an individual who carries these germline mutations in BRCA1 or 2 can have a up to 60% of lifetime breast cancer risk. So that knowledge is really important. And in fact, the BRCA1 and 2, we also know that some other cancer risks are increased as well, such as ovarian cancer, pancreas cancer, prostate cancer in men, as well as male breast cancer, amongst others. Yeah, how often do men get breast cancer? Like, how rare is that compared to women? Yes, it's very rare, actually. You know, in the overall populations, is really, you know, less than 1%. And it's about 0.5% perhaps in uh, in the average population. But if there's a BRCA1 or especially BRCA2 mutation, that risk can go up to 5 to 6%. It's a significant increase, but you know, if you put it into context, it's still half of the risk of a average risk woman's breast cancer risk. So the average risk is about 11 to 12% in the general population and in men with the BRCA mutation though breast cancer risk is increased, it's still at 5%. So it's half that of a regular risk woman. Uh, what does the mutation do with the significance of it? Like, how does it happen? Is it just a natural occurrence or what? 
Yeah. So the germline mutations in BRCA1 and 2, um, these genes play a role in protein function that can help broken DNA repair. So it kind of makes sure that if there are any uh, insults into DNA and if there are any problems that these proteins really repair these damages. In individuals uh, who have mutations in BRCA1 and 2, DNA repair doesn't really happen as it should happen. And therefore, cells with damaged DNA can accumulate and grow and can initiate cancer development. And again, for BRCA1 and 2, it's mostly breast, ovarian, pancreas, prostate, and melanoma. Okay. So what what are the different types of treatments when someone has breast cancer? Like they'll come, will they, you know, what usually is the sign a woman will come in with that something's wrong, like lumps in her breast? Yeah, that's a good question also. So obviously, maybe I can kind of mention what we do for women who have the germline mutation, who don't have cancer, what we, how, how since we know that their risk is increased, how do we do the screening? So for these women, in addition to yearly mammograms, we also recommend and the NCCN guidelines recommendations are to include breast MRIs. So we start with breast MRIs at age 25 and at age 30, so 10 years younger than the average woman, also add mammograms. We discuss risk reductive surgeries. So it's kind of more, you know, intense surveillance. We also refer our patients for ovarian screening, careful screening because ovarian cancer risk. And if there's a family history of pancreas cancer, we also refer for pancreas screening as well. And as I mentioned, men will refer for prostate screening and to dermatology for melanoma screening. Besides imaging, so picking up abnormalities on imaging that could prompt biopsies for diagnosis, sometimes breast cancer can also be diagnosed, which is becoming more and more rare because we pick up everything on imaging. If a woman feels a lump or changes in the breast, that would prompt then further imaging. And if abnormalities are found, then biopsies are done. Well, what does that mean, abnormalities? What would uh, a woman feel that would be different? In addition to lumps. So in addition to lumps, I think what we tell our patients, we call it breast awareness, actually. So in addition to feeling abnormal lumps, I think changes in the skin color, some dimpling or a mass in the axilla could be also signs that further evaluation needs to be done. And I'm saying this very carefully. I'm not saying it could be signs that it is cancer, but that further evaluation needs to be done to make sure it's not cancer. Redness, skin thickening are also signs. Okay. So let's say, you know, something comes up on imaging or there's a lump or, you know, whatever. What kind of testing is done? What kind of biopsies and how do they work? So if abnormalities are found on, let's say, a mammogram, the next step would be really to obtain tissue if it's significant enough. And usually the biopsy is done as a core needle biopsy, image guided, so that the radiologist really targets the area that is seen on the mammogram that is abnormal. And a few cores are taken and sent to pathology for in-depth evaluation to make sure that there's no cancer. Okay. So that's taken. And then if cancer is found, what happens? Do they try to further characterize mutations or what happens? Yeah. So once we have a diagnosis of cancer, then we are obviously looking at some molecular markers. So mutations, but this time those are not inherited mutations. They're different than what we just discussed, such as BRC1 and 2, because those are inherited. It happens in, in every single cell we have. But once we have a cancer diagnosis and talk about genetic testing or molecular testing of the tumor, now we are dealing with 
changes that happen in the tumor that is not inherited, but the tumor develops some ab genetic abnormalities. So the most common markers, obviously, we look at is the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and then the HER2 new receptor. Based on those, treatment strategies can be defined that can range from endocrine therapy to chemotherapy to targeted therapies. Sometimes the molecular subtype of breast cancers, for example, if it's triple negative, um, can also determine whether the patient will receive, will undergo surgery first, or maybe if it's a larger tumor, will receive chemotherapy first to shrink the tumor and then go to surgery. Yeah. Why is it important to in some cases do, I mean, do they do radiation first or chemo first if the tumor is large, let's say? So if the tumor is larger, studies have shown that the best outcome is if we do a, what we call a multidisciplinary, multimodality approach. So for larger tumors, and again, the larger cutoff changes all the time, I think it's getting smaller and smaller. So even stage two, some even stage one triple negative breast cancers can be initially treated with chemotherapy, followed by surgery, and then uh, if uh, indicated, and there are certain criteria, then followed up by radiation therapy. If the tumor is estrogen and or progesterone receptor positive, that means that blocking estrogen is important because studies have shown that if estrogen pathway is blocked by anti-estrogen therapy, we call this endocrine therapy, the risk of recurrence of breast cancer is decreased by 50% and survival is improved by 30% in these women. So after reagent, chemo, surgery, radiation, we might also offer five and maybe in some cases, 10 years of hormonal or endocrine therapy. Oh, okay. So what, what happens when a, a breast tumor produces excess estrogen? Like what will happen to the woman and why is blocking the pathway beneficial? Is it slow tumor growth or like what's the reason? Yeah. So studies have actually shown when the tumor has estrogen receptors, what it means is that circulating estrogen in the body can go and bind to these receptors on the tumor cells and increase the growth, dissemination, and proliferation of the tumor cells. In fact, very, very early studies have shown that, and we call this meta-analysis, where we look at multiple studies that were done and put them all together. And those meta-analyses have shown that in women with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, blocking that path way with anti-estrogens or endocrine therapy reduces the risk of recurrence by 50% and improves survival by 30%. So it is important to block that pathway with agents. And luckily, we have medications available that can either reduce the production of estrogen or block the receptor on the tumor cells so that the circulating estrogen in the body cannot go and bind to that receptor or it binds there and it's blocked and further estrogen cannot bind to the receptors. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. 
what are some of the symptoms of again high estrogen? Is it uh, you know what will happen to mood? What will happen to body processes? You know what does it do to the person? So I think think what you're asking about is what the side effects are when we block the estrogen pathway with endocrine therapy, right? Well, again, what happens before you do the therapy? What will the person experience when they have you know? So I think for tumors that are estrogen positive or negative, there is really no difference in terms of what the patient will experience. They won't experience anything with high estrogen before they get the therapy? Correct. The breast cancer symptoms do not differentiate in ER positive or ER negative patients. But do you know, again, like clinically, symptomatically, what do they experience? They don't feel anything with the excess estrogen? They just feel fine? So the excess, it is really not excess estrogen. It is the increased receptors on the tumor cells where the estrogen can bind. So the estrogen is not really that increased. It's the receptor on the tumor cells that is increased where any estrogen can bind. So having increased receptors on the tumor cells is not really related to the circulating estrogen and what a person experiences. But once it binds, though, I mean, does it just sit there in an active or an inactive? Like, what happens to it? Yeah. So when the estrogen binds to the estrogen receptor on the tumor cells, it triggers several intracellular events that lead to proliferation, dissemination, and even metastasis, so growth of that cancer cell. Does the estrogen turn into something else as it accumulates on these receptors? Like, does it preferentially bind to other compounds and deplete them in the bloodstream? Or does it does it actually lower the circulating estrogen that the woman has? That is a great question. I think, you know, these estrogens, circulating estrogens in the body, preferentially, of course, bind to the estrogen receptors. There are multiple in the body. You know, there are estrogen receptors in the breast, um, in the uterus, you know, in the bone. But they bind to those at physiological levels. And so there is kind of a balance in the body. But because the tumor cells have disproportional high levels of receptors, a lot of estrogen binds to the receptors more than it should. You know, each breast cells do have estrogen receptors, but it's controlled. But if it's exponentially increased, then a lot of estrogen binds to these cells. So let's say in one breast cell, and I'm just giving it as an example, it's not like that. But if a normal breast cell has five receptors, then it's fine. But if a cancer cell all of a sudden has instead of five, 500, that's 100 times higher than that cell is bombarded with a lot of circulating estrogen that binds to these 500 receptors and the cell goes out of control. And that's what initiates the cancer. Okay. So if you block the estrogen production, what happens to the estrogen that's bound to the existing cells? Does it need to be refreshed? Does the estrogen unbind at some point and become useless or fall off or decay? Like what, and what happens to the the circulating estrogen level when you do this? So if we give drugs that reduce the production of estrogen, whatever was bound to the receptor, of course, is not affected. But these estrogen that is on the receptors is degraded. So yes, you're right. It gets, you know, it's not forever. It slowly is internalized and degraded. But what happens is that when the receptor becomes available again to bind new estrogen, it's not available anymore because the drugs we gave reduced the production or prevented the production of new estrogen to come and bind. 
What about trying to increase other hormones, like increase testosterone levels a little bit or progesterone or pregnenolone or, you know, what's the interplay of the various hormones? Is it estrogen or is there other strategies that work better? Yeah. So those are very good questions. But for the therapy of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, it's really mainly blocking the estrogen, either at the receptor level or the production level. The other drugs do not have a role in the treatment of ER positive breast cancer right now. What about the three types, estriol, estrone, you know, estradiol? What's the nuance there? Is it block all kinds? Is there a, an increase in one over the others, you know, in certain tumors? Uh, no, it's so uh, the receptors, you know, are not, uh, and the treatments are not specific for the subtypes of circulating, you know, estrogen-related hormones. But has it been noticed that there's different, you know, circulation of the different types of estrogen? There is really no data looking at all of the subtypes. In general, it's the drugs where we look at, you know, estradiol levels to see the effectiveness of the drug and estradiol levels are decreased. So mainly targeting estradiol. Okay. So once this therapy is given, what happens then? Like, do you wait until the circulating levels of estrogen are down to a certain point and then do chemo or surgery? Like, where does this therapy come in and where is it best to be used and when? Yeah, because the endocrine therapy is the chronic treatment. So as I mentioned, five to 10 years, it really comes to play at the very end. So initially it's chemo surgery, if needed, radiation therapy at after everything is done, and some call it maintenance therapy, then the endocrine therapy comes into play for five to 10 years. In fact, there are some early studies showing that if you give the endocrine therapy together with chemotherapy, you can reduce the effectiveness of chemo. So we never give it together. Okay. What are the, I mean, the survivals for chemo and radiation and you know, all that, like their average statistics that you can talk about or what, what's observed? Um, so studies have shown, and again, it goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning, you know, Large meta-analyses have shown where, you know, people look at multiple studies, put them together and, you know, come up with the conclusion. So, you know, chemotherapy reduces the risk of recurrence and improved survival where indicated. Endocrine therapy does it also. And radiation therapy reduces the risk of local recurrence significantly. And this really translates into altogether 50% reduction in risk of recurrence and more than 30% improvement in survival when all of the appropriate treatments are done. Well, what are the baseline and what are the, the statistics after these treatments are done for the different kinds? Like, let's say, again, you know, you have triple negative versus like estrogen producing. What are the different survival rates for these? If for stage one, for triple negative, for example, the, the cure rate can range anywhere between 80 to 90 to 100 percent. And you're improving that by 50 percent with all appropriate therapies. The same you also can say for estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, though estrogen receptor positive breast cancer is very, is a little interesting because it can also have later recurrences. So triple negative breast cancer likes to recur within the first two years, maybe five, but the estrogen receptor positive breast cancer can, we can sometimes see late recurrences beyond 10 years. And that's why Actually, as I mentioned, endocrine therapy can be given up to 10 years instead of five because we want to prevent those late recurrences. What about, again, the estrogen dominant? What's the, the survival rate for, let's say, stage one or two? Is it very different? For stage one, again, you know, with all of the molecular subtypes, it's it gets a little bit tricky because we have now new tests such as Oncotype that really tell us which stage one breast cancer is better than the other one. Uh, but overall, I can say, you know, the cure rate is more than 
90%, and it can go up to 90-95%, depending on the sub-molecular types that we determine using some molecular tests. So there are you know newer tests out there that go beyond looking at the estrogen, progesterone, and her new receptor oncotype is, for example, where the assay is looking at multiple other factors to determine risk of recurrence among stage one breast cancer patients. And the numbers come out different for different people with different characteristics. Okay. Um, are there any new therapies that you think may be coming to you know clinical use in the next you know three to five years? Oh, definitely. I mean, every year we have see new drugs uh, being approved for either advanced breast cancer or early breast cancer. So for ER positive breast cancer, the latest is that the CDK4-6 inhibitors are now approved in early breast cancer in addition to endocrine therapy. For example, for triple negative breast cancer, we have immunotherapy in addition to chemotherapy. And for breast cancers that have germline BRCA mutations, kind of going back to our you know, beginning of the talk, individuals who have a germline BRCA mutation and breast cancer, some of them benefit from targeting that mutation with a drug called PARP inhibitor. Olaparib is now indicated in early breast cancer for selected patients. So there's a lot going on. And all of these just happened within the last few years. Okay. Well, very good. So today, if someone, you know, listening has, they've been diagnosed, I know you can't give specific advice, but what should a, a patient today do that maybe they wouldn't have done 10 years ago? You know, if they have one of the various kinds of breast cancer, like what are some of the things that have changed to get proper treatments? And to find out even, you know, for their particular circumstance, what's the best thing to do. Yeah, I think what is different than, you know, more than 10 years ago is really, as I mentioned, the molecular subtype is, is determining that is very important because that not only gives prognostic information, but also predictive. It tells us from what therapy the patient will benefit most systemically. It doesn't really help with the surgical decision, but with the drug approaches, it definitely helps. I think defining the tumor the best we can molecularly is the best approach because then we can really do what we call personalized therapy that hopefully will lead to the best personalized outcome of that cancer for that person. Okay. Just the last number, maybe for context, how many women each year worldwide or in the US, you know, end up with some kind of breast cancer? Yeah, breast cancer incidence, you know, is increasing really over the years. Uh, overall, it's about, you know, more than 250,000 per year that are diagnosed. But luckily, we are curing more patients. So the mortality rate is decreasing. That's very good. Okay, excellent. So you talked about testing the tumor and looking at its genetics. But what about the genetics of the person? You know, their mother had breast cancer or their father, like the inherited genetics versus the genetics of the tumor. What's the difference there? Yeah. So we alluded to that at the beginning a little bit. So when we talk about inherited genetics, that's really, let's say, you know, as you mentioned, having a family history of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreas cancer. Then we look into genes uh, that patients or people are born with and try to find mutations such as the BRC1 and 2 and P53 and others. Whereas what we talked about towards the you know end for breast cancer patients is we look into genetic changes that happened after the tumor or during the tumor formation. So they are not inherited. That really happens when the tumor is forming. And those changes are only in the tumor. It's not in the rest of the body. So that's a distinction between inherited germline mutations and the tumor genetic mutations. Okay, very good. Dr. Medea, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Of course. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.